The following audio content is a talk given at The Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. We are going to continue tonight in our look at the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we get to hear from a guy that comes from Point South, that, is, that would be Camas, Washington. And because of the close proximity of Camas, Washington to Portland, Oregon, the guy we get to hear from tonight is an obnoxious Portland Trailblazers fan and has really brought... His, his evangelical mission this year has been apparently to convert the whole office into being Trailblazer fans now that the Sonics are gone. So far, uh, I don't think he's recruited anybody to that bandwagon. He is a recent graduate of Seattle Pacific University, where he earned a degree in educational ministries and was a student ministry coordinator last year. And over the years, we have been drawn to Tyler's sincere pursuit of of the faith and the friendly demeanor that he goes about that with. In fact, one student I met with today said, you know, I think Tyler uses the word friend more than any other person I know. And for anybody that knows Tyler, that's absolutely true. I think we get an energetic treat tonight in hearing from my friend, Tyler Gorsline. I get a treat to share with you tonight. Um, Okay, so... Tyler Gorsline, intern, Ryan shared some fun details, and yes, I am willing to convert any of you to the Blazer faith. If you are into it, I will bring you in to the fold. Um, but that the, the beauty of a good introduction is that it sets somebody up because it makes the people curious about who exactly is the person behind you know, the introduction, right? So I want to begin by telling you a couple things about me. So... The, a question I get so frequently is, oh, you're an intern. Like, what does that mean, right? Well, it means I have the best job in the world, first of all. Secondly, it means that I get to spend a ton of time with students who know Jesus, who are committed to follow and grow in him, and, and I get to encourage that. And I get to support that and challenge them to take risks and, and try new things and, and really um, become who it is that, that they most desire to be with Christ. On the other hand, I get to spend time with people who don't know Jesus, and that's a huge part of it for me, a huge excitement for me, because I get to share what I am passionate about, but more importantly than that, get to encourage people in whatever it is that they're passionate about, um, to just really, really go for it and experience life, and and hopefully, um, you know, share a curiosity in the same thing that I love most. Um, and even in telling you that, you know, that's that's what I do, right? I mean, I... I spend time, my office is a coffee shop, right? It's true. I laugh a ton. I go on great retreats with people like the freshmen, right? Come on. And uh, I get to go on a, you know, mission trips. Like I'm going on this, this Christmas break, doing a Seattle mission trip, and then this spring break, doing a trip to the DR. Like I get to do these incredible things. I'm stoked about them. But that still is just a, a minimal picture of who I am. And I could sit up here all day and talk all night because, one, I love to talk. And I have no problem telling you a lot about me um, and learning a lot about you. But I want to I paint a picture of, of who I am and where I come from a little bit by uh, 
going back to the ripe old age of, of 12 and, and the sixth grade and the transition from the big city of Cam, or the big city of Vancouver that I was from to the honky tonk town known as Camus, right? Come on. Camus. Yeah. So, um, I brought a few images with me to, to show you what life was like for me in Vancouver, right? How, who the man was in sixth grade, right? You want to pull those up, Steve? Let's show a little bit, right? So, what you see here, I was probably on the phone with my agent because I performed in three talent shows, ladies and gentlemen, singing Casey and JoJo all my life to all the honeys at Crestline Elementary. Come on, right? So clearly, the as you see, you go to the next picture. This is me wooing the ladies, right? Sorry, Kim, but she's taller than me. I'm not into tall girls anymore, but it's good, right? There you go. Lady wooing, elementary school, right? You know, going on. Let's see. I was a basketball star, as you can see by my Houston Rockets jersey. Come on, right? And then lastly, you know, I was I felt like Mr. Popular in elementary school, right? I, I had the attention from friends and the way that I wanted it. And I was, you know, all in all, a happy kid. Like, I really, really had a good time, as you'll see by this last picture. Right? Look at that. That looks like happiness, right? You know? I look like a bobblehead, kind of. Right? But then, you know, circumstance changed. And my parents, uh, we, they adopted three siblings that I have now because we had a family, a couple family members lose lose their life and they came and moved in with us so we had to move to Camus because we needed a bigger house to house all of us and a place where you can afford it like the backwoods and so we moved to Camus right where I became a paper maker right <laughs> this this is David Letterman's top 10 list number two worst mascots in America that's a paper maker right that looks like a lunch pail with teeth right okay so not only that, but our town landmark, show them the town landmark, the paper mill. We are known for our stink station. Look at that. It's gross, right? Sick. You're like, oh, we're in Camus now. Like, hmm. Let's keep driving east to nowhere. Okay? So then, so then you, you've got that, right? Our town celebrity, you want to see who that is? Tanya Harding. <laughs> town celebrity. I kid you not, I've seen her stumble out of a bar on, on Camus days. It was great. I was there. It was, it was a town celebrity moment, right? So, so you've got that, right? And then, you know, lastly, we have locals, right? Every town has their townspeople. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I just want to show you some town locals. And, you know, I'm, I'm clearly exaggerating here, but I wanted to have some fun before telling you that it was hard to move to Canis, right? It was really hard for me because I did go from this place of feeling like I was so loved and so supported to being the kid from the big city who was the wannabe gangster breakdancer kid, right? All of that, all of a sudden, and I moved, I moved, you know, five miles and I wasn't accepted and it was really hard for me. It was really hard for me in the beginning of it because I didn't understand why people couldn't see who I was, right? That they couldn't see that I was in need of friends, that I had this circumstantial need. And so it was really hard. And what happened is that became my, my goal. My goal was to make friends at all costs, right? So that was, that was what was my drive in that time. Um, and I thought if, 
if I would get that need, net, that need met, it would satisfy my deepest, my deepest longing. But I now look back and I see that at the time my vision was so limited and that God had a lot more going on. So I'm going to return to my story in a little bit, but I want to start by going, um, taking a look at what we've been doing thus far in this quarter. We've been looking at what did Jesus do through the Gospel of Mark, right? The Gospel is, is one that is filled with all these stories of actions that Jesus did. And, um, you know, we're, we're doing that as a turn on the popular, popular adage of what would Jesus do, right? You see the bracelets, you see all of that. But today we're going to look again at what Jesus did in the Gospel of Mark. Thus far, we've seen him, you know, heal people of demon possession. We've seen him calm a violent storm. We've seen him eat with sinners. We've seen him talk about, you know, what it means to really take a Sabbath rest appropriately. We've seen him um, pray in all different kinds of situations. But tonight, we're going to look um, at a scripture from chapter 6 of the book of Mark, um, verses 6 through 12. And 30 through 44. And if you would just follow along with, with my friend Liz Orstad, she's going to be the voice of the end tonight. And if you brought a Bible, feel free to read out of that. But if you didn't, we're going to have slides for you to follow along with the scripture as she reads it. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Wherever you en- whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He said, go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Okay, so in this scripture, 
we see Jesus do some other interesting things as well, right? We see it begin by him sending out his disciples to do exactly the things that he is doing himself. He sends them out to teach, to preach, to cast out demons, and to heal people, to anoint them with oil, right? But then the disciples, you know, or actually even along the way, he tells them, don't bring anything with you. You don't even need to worry about bringing anything. Trust that I'm going to provide, you know, provide through the people that you're going to meet along the way, right? Trust in those provisions. So they come back, right, and they are hungry, and they have a lot of great stories to tell. They come back, they're stoked just to tell Jesus what, what has happened. He sent them out and what he did through them. And, you know, you can tell they're in need of a serious nap as well because, you know, there, there's, no, there's no note of them not wanting to get in the boat, right? They're, they're ready to go to an introvert's paradise for some serious R&R. And uh, while the R gets thrown around here a lot, he may look old enough, but I promise he wasn't one of those R's in attendance. So, serious R&R, rest was needed. Um, they're stoked because they're going to get what they believe is theirs and what they perceive that they deserve, right? But instead, something totally unexpected happens. As they're going, and they're in the boat, and they're coming, they're going from one place to another, and they're going along their way, and they look and they see that this crowd is gathered, right? And as they arrive, Jesus does, again, the unexpected and says, you know, and, and goes and has compassion on the people by teaching them, these people that were um, with directionless, because he said, he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. Right? That, that term is so rich in, in the, the Hebrew tradition, right? And in, in the tradition of, of our forefathers in scripture, because Israel was a people that was known that they, they needed a king because they were like sheep without a shepherd, right? And so Jesus meets their need and gives them direction as a king would. But you gotta, you gotta remember that, remember that term. Because we're going to return to it later. But you've you got to imagine for the disciples that this is quite an ironic situation. You know, they've just given Jesus their all, right? They get in return for a, a trip for some solace to get away. Yet here comes this big herd of sheep. And the shepherd leaves those, that, those sheep of his that are closest to him, his closest followers, he leaves them behind. Right? So you've got to wonder, in the next story in Mark... His disciples freak out because they think he's a ghost coming to them out on the water. And you know, you, you got to wonder if they're more freaked out because they're like, oh crap, like, here comes Jesus ready to give us some more work. Like, I imagine that being scarier for them than like the fact of a ghost. Because it's like anytime Jesus shows up, he, he not only wants to fill us, but he wants to give us something to do to help, to help fill others. So, let me take a second and return to that story in middle school. I... After a while, I, you know, I got on the basketball team. I started to make friends, especially with people that I really had hoped for, right? And I started to make these relationships. And the thought in my mind was, sweet, I'm going to finally be satisfied because I've got what I think I need and what I expect to happen. I expect my need to get met, and I finally got it. But the weird thing was, is getting those friends didn't really meet my need, right? Instead, my new task became not losing those friends, that became my new fear and my new idol, right? So I spent all this time doing that, trying to maintain the status quo. And 
you know, like, like the disciples, I found out that things weren't like I imagined them. And I had a hard time letting go of what I expected. You know, I kept thinking that if I press in more and more, that those friends would meet that need, that deep need that was there for me. And I think this is where, where Mark starts to show the difference between the disciples and Jesus' perspective. Right? They, they show up, he does this thing, and then they have this conversation. And, and this is fun, because you know, they come up to him and they're like, all right, maybe, maybe we'll tell him the circumstances. Maybe, maybe that'll get him right. So, so they say, you know, Jesus, it's, it's a remote place. You know, it's late in the day. Right? And, then, and then they tell him what they think is the best way for Jesus to serve the situation. And they say, you know, shouldn't we send them away? I mean, come on, Jesus. You know, everywhere we go, we get interrupted, right? You know, shouldn't we send them away? Um, you know, and, and in this, I think we, we start to see for the first time an uneagerness that maybe those disciples have to serve that crowd. You know, can we blame them even? I mean, wonder if they're thinking, um, are the tangible needs being met of others mean that we're not going to get ours met? Is there not enough to go around? Why, why is it that Jesus stops to care for them along the way? You know, are we going to, are our needs going to be met? Because the plans have changed. And so, again, I imagine this dialogue going a bit like this. Yeah, Jesus, so it's getting kind of late, right? Which is, in their head, seems a little bit more like, seriously, dude, can we just call it a day? Like, seriously, man. And then they go, Jesus, this is a remote place. Which, to me, sounds a little bit like, this place looks... A lot like what you promised us, you know, that, that thing about us going over on the boat, you know, to get some R&R. That's what this looks like to me. You know, and then the last thing they say, Jesus, shouldn't we give them a place and an opportunity to get some food for themselves? Which to me sounds like, bro, we are flipping hungry. We want some fish and chips. And we want to lay back. We want to max and relax on a hammock because this place looks like paradise. But, oh, wait, there's 5,000 people in the way of paradise. So how the heck are we going to feed him? You know, so, but then Jesus, of course, being Jesus and, you know, understanding things much bigger, seeing the picture much bigger than those sheep, decides to say, oh, I see what you want. I see what you're thinking. How about, how about, you know, since you're all tired and hungry, how about you feed them? Right? That's what you're trying to say, right? That's what, that's what you're trying to get at. You know, he says, oh, you give them something to eat. So, what in the heck is Jesus trying to do here? Like, is he a god of pain? Is he like, yeah, yeah, I want my people to be parched. I want them to just be miserable, because that's how I am. Is that what's going on? You know, I think the disciples at this point have gotten to a breaking point, even. You know, haven't you heard us tell you all the things that are wrong with the situation, Jesus? And, you know, is it impossible that... You, you can't jump between their needs and ours? Like, is that, are we really, is this just not going to happen? Are we not going to get that rest and food that we need? Um, but then Jesus seems to say something, you know, and he goes and, and he seems to look into their soul in it for a second and goes, what do you have? Right? He says, go and feed, but then he asks this question, what do you have? And then he asks, how much? How much do you have? And further, he says, okay, you go and see how much you have. Right? He doesn't allow them to sit in those circumstantial doubts. You know, he doesn't allow them to just, you know, answer how much they have or what they have. 
But instead he says, go and see. He moves them to action. Right? And he's planting a seed here that's really special. You know, he doesn't get angry with them. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't, you know, point out how they're like sheep without a shepherd. And the, the thing about sheep, often, I don't know if any of you have heard the thing that people say sheep are stupid. Right? Well, sheep are stupid. I've heard that so many times, right? But I talked to somebody about sheep. I kid you not. I'm a professor and I was like, is that the case? Like, are sheep that dumb? You know, like, what's the deal? The problem with sheep is not that they're dumb. It's that they're narrow. It's that their focus is narrow, right? Why would sheep need a shepherd? But if for the reason that they're looking at only the blade of grass right in front of them, to the point that even in a herd, you know, even with tons of sheep around them, they can't see the wolf coming. You'd think that they'd be like, you know, like, like, I got bit, like, no, you don't, that's not how sheep respond. Instead, sheep need, you know, a shepherd to keep the picture bigger than what it is. (laughs) Sorry, I'm having fun. Um, So again, he says, what do you have? And he says, how much? And he says, go and see. You know, it's, it's like whatever they have, he is asking them to join in with that. Right? He's asking them to respond to the needs of others around them, to be interrupted. You know, I know that there's those times where you're, you know, you're in your fraternity, your sorority, or your dorm room, and you're hanging out, and you're like, ah, yeah, Jesus has provided this time for me to get my homework done, which is totally important. But you know, there's a part of you sometimes where somebody comes in and they're battling with an issue or they're crying or they got something going on and they're like, I'm so mad about this. And you have that opportunity to see the bigger picture going on. But you're like, nah, because my circumstances, I really want to do this right now. Like, this is what I want most. But maybe there's another need that needs to be met that's outside of our own need in that moment. So let me take a second and, and step out of all this seriousness. And uh, it's important, right? But I want to tell you a little bit about, a little bit more about who I am. And how that, how I want to tell you that is, my mom is in attendance, little lady over there, everybody say hi. Hi. Right? My mom is a flight attendant, and uh, as a result of that, I've gotten free flights for my entire life up until this past September. And so what that has made me is what one of my friends likes to so lovingly call me, as his, all of his nicknames, I'm a vagabond, I'm a transient, I'm a nomad, all of these things, right? Which is totally true. And I have like no problem with the nicknames because I'm like, come on, give me more. Because I love it. I love traveling, right? I love it. I, these last two summers, I went to Europe for 24 days and backpacked through eight countries, right? With one friend that's here. And, in, and this last summer, I went to Egypt, Israel, and Jordan with one of my best friends, And just the two of us just traveled around, right? I love living on the fly, like the adventure of being able to go, to go and see, really. I love having to rely on that place. I love eating peanut butter out of a jar. I love sleeping on roofs and benches and parks and on beaches and, you know, in train stations. Like, that, me too, whoever said that, way to go. Enjoy it, right? Love it. So I love that. The world feels like my playground. I watch movies like Into the Wild, and I'm like, mm-hmm, I should do that minus the dying thing. Like, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, I don't want to kill anybody. Okay, right? You know, 
And, you know, and I might be the only person in the world who enjoys layovers, like Tom Hanks Terminal enjoys layovers. Like, I'm like, oh, great. Like, I got bumped from my flight. Three more hours. Like, it's weird, right? So then another thing that I love, and this is more my seeing thing, is I absolutely love the show Lost. Like, I can't even tell you. Come on. Woo. Yep. Right? I love Lost so much. And the thing about Lost that I love is it's, it's the show where I, you know, I drive my girlfriend and my friends crazy because I'm always like, oh, here's what I think happens. Because it's so layered and there's so much there to see, right? There's so much bigger than what's going on. And every time I watch it, I mean, I go on spoiler sites and I like, but I kind of keep one eye closed and like click, like maybe I'll see something, but I don't want to know what happens, right? I'm so into it. And I'm so into it to the point that I could tell you that 71 days from now is when the season premiere is. And I know that's weird, and I'm going to thank Becky for that, but seriously, I love it because it's just so rich. So take these two passions, throw them together, and you have a recipe for disaster, right? Because there are many times where I'm on a plane and I'm like, what would it be like? <laughs> like, especially when I'm crossing the globe, I'm like, Okay, like, I know I've got family, and they'd be worried, and I know they'd be freaked out, but, like, if I, I just crashed on an island, minus half the plane dying, that would be really sad, but, like, if I was on the island, like, I'd get to have these crazy, accelerated relationships where I'd just be with people, and we'd have to figure things out, and, you know, maybe the island wouldn't have smoke monsters and all these other things, but, like, it would be amazing, right? So, when I watch Lost... One of those character relationships that, that just makes, ignites this fire, so to speak, that just makes me like, oh, that would be so sweet, um, is this relationship between a guy named, this a doctor named Jack Shepard, right? And Jack's like Mr. Empirical. Like, he is like, evidence, this is the way it is. I am a man of science. You know, I mean, he, he is a surgeon. Like, his gift is that he sees it how it is, right? Kind of like the disciples, right? They, they're just like, oh, Jesus, this is what's going on, like... This is the circumstance. Whereas there's other guy, John Locke, who sometimes a little crazy, but John Locke's gift is his seeing things bigger than what they are. And you just don't know. You always wonder what he's up to because you think there's something bigger that he knows that's going on. And I want to show you a clip um, from the first season of Lost um, of an interaction between these two characters that I think speaks a little bit to Jesus and the disciples' conversation. Look, I need for you to... I need for you to explain to me what the hell's going on inside your head, John. I need to know why you believe that that thing wasn't going to... I believe that I was being tested. Tested? Yeah. Tested. I think that's why you and I don't see eye to eye sometimes, Jack. Because you're a man of science. Yeah. And what does that make you? Me? Well, I'm a man of faith. Do you really think all this is an accident? That we, a group of strangers, survived? Many of us with just superficial injuries? Do you think we crashed on this place by coincidence? Especially this place? We were brought here for a purpose, for a reason, all of us. Each one of us was brought here for a reason. Brought here. And who brought us here, John? 
Well, not the island. Um, <laughs> don't want to get it all mixed up and twisted, right? Okay. So you've got the disciples' response to what you know Jesus says. You know, what do you have? How much? Go and see, right? And in this situation, you know, there, there's this hatch. They've got this this hatch that they're trying to get into, and the question is, you know, the disciples are like. Jesus, their response is, this is not possible. This is not enough for us both, Jesus. You know, that would take a year's wages. Right? That would take a year's wages. And, you know, much like Jack, they're like, the, the situation is so dire that, you know, we can't, we can't see outside of that, that there's something bigger going on. You know? And, and you gotta wonder that, you think they're asking the question, like, why? Like, why is Jesus bringing up all this stuff? Like, why is he putting it back in our plate? Right? Why does he put it in our lap, right? In each and every one of our laps. In this situation, the disciples are like, what is going on? And, you know, they say, that, like I said, a year's wages, this is what it would take to feed these people. And what we have, how much we have, is five fish and two loaves. And Jesus responds in a way that's bigger than their circumstances. He realizes there's an opportunity to give love like never before and to change their limited understanding of love's capacity, right? You know, he, instead of just asking them, he continues to empower them. And this is something I think is so special, right? He, he tells them to organize the people. We're talking about 5,000 people. That's not like an easy task, but the, the ones that are doubting most, he says, hey, I want you to take them, organize them, sit them down on the grass, right, into groups, Right? And he takes the focus off of the situation and he puts it on the one who can handle the situation. Right? That's what Jesus does. And he makes... It's so funny because then he, then he goes, oh, okay, here. And he lifts up, he lifts up the bread and, and, and the, you know, the lo- he lifts up the loaves and the fish and he, and he gives it to God and he breaks it and then he gives it back to the disciples and he gives it back to them so that they can give it out. Right? There's, there's nothing in this where he's saying, like, he's not condemning them in their doubts about the, the amazing things that he can do, you know? He's not saying, don't you know that all things are possible through God? He's showing him. He's grabbing it, and he's saying, here. And he breaks it, right? And then, he, and then he gives it to them so that they can know, not just because they're told, but by doing it themselves. And then... And the beauty of it is that Mark decides to go and make, you know, the, the understatement of the century. And is like, oh, and then they all ate and were satisfied. And you're like, oh, all that drama for they all ate and were contented. All that drama to this point that, that the end result, while it might not have been the course that they imagined, you know, maybe they thought, let's get and get our place of rest and then we can go back out. You know, and, and then meet the world's need. It's important to have rest. It's important. You know, it's important for these, these needs to be met. But sometimes God's plan is, is different than we imagine each next step. So yeah, all ate and were contented. And even more, there were leftovers. And I noticed something just today in reading this. It wasn't like, uh, there was a, a bunch of leftovers. There were 12 baskets. I never connected that those 12 baskets are like, hey, here, you, disciple, the collector of these baskets, each of you 
has leftover to give. Not only did we go from the space of what you might have felt like was not your need being met, but we jumped it to the point where there was enough for you to be content and more than you imagined so that you can give it to other people. Right? They all left with extra. So I think Jesus is trying to communicate here. I mean, there's so many points, but this is how I see it. But there's enough love to care for us. There's more than enough to meet our need and enough to work in us and through us. Right? That Jesus isn't, you know, so much about, you know, us staying according to our plan as much as he is. Watch and see. You know, lifting it up to God and seeing what God can do. So I want to I wanna go back and finish with my story and tell you that the very reason I'm here is this message extended from people to people who took those extras, who took the leftovers of the love that they received and gave it out, right? I, you know, I told you that I sought so hard to find a God, so to speak, in getting accepted after I lost that. And then I was so afraid of losing it, right? But that never satisfied. And it just took to new lengths and new compromises, right? You know, I tried to find my identity in all sorts of things. Whether it was being out, you know, parties with my friends, you know, or trying to, you know, get physical with girls in high school or whatever it was. I kept trying to do these things to keep that status quo. But what Jesus did was he he sent somebody in my life. He sent a, a youth pastor into my life. I went on a retreat after I was out doing all these things, trying to keep the status quo, wrecked a car, and then I ended up on this retreat, right? And I still was like, nah, like this extra, this... This bread you're offering me to eat myself, it's not enough. Like, it's not enough for me to feel satisfied because I don't want to make that sacrifice of those things. But then a year later, another person who somebody had reached out to them and given them their leftovers came up to me and started pursuing me and telling me that it was about the love that was in the bread that Jesus was offering me as part of that crowd. That it was about that love. And that I couldn't miss it. Because if I miss it, I would be so unsatisfied, you know, trying to rest trying to rest in this place that I thought I was going to finally find rest, but I wasn't, because there was nowhere else I could find the rest that Jesus was going to give me. Right? And it was my young life leader, and he, and he reached out to me in an incredible way. And it's just amazing, because after that, I ate, and then I got to go, like, immediately. I got empowered to just go and keep giving and giving. And I got to do and be a part of things that I never thought were what was best for me, but in that giving of myself, I've received love like never before. And that's why I'm here as an intern five years later. Is because somebody gave their leftovers to me, and I ate at the leftovers myself. Right? So I want to make sure that we realize that God's love is our place of contentment first. You know, that is where we're going to most find it. Is we need to take and eat, but we also need to receive the blessed gift that it is to give that to others. Because we're all here tonight. Many of us are here. Because people have continued this pattern. All the way of doing what Jesus did. Right? So I want to end with an image from my trip to Israel. Right? This past summer. Some of you might have seen this before. This is a mosaic on the floor at the church of of the, the bread and the loaves. Which is, you know, a place... Which is where it is believed that Jesus fed the 5,000. Where this event happened. I got to go and see. And it was incredible. 
I got to go and see this, this mosaic that was on the floor, and it was made by Egyptian people third, you know, in the 3rd or 4th century, right? So that means people kept feeding and reaching out to them, and that pattern got all the way to them, right? And they came back, and they made this artwork. And what you'll see here is that there's four loaves. You see the four loaves? One, two, three, four, in the basket, and two fish, Right? Isn't that how the story goes? I mean, you know, I know there's another story like this where the disciples forget again, like we always forget all the time, that Jesus is going to meet our needs and the needs of others. No, there's five. There's five loaves in this story. And the thing that I don't want us to miss is that it's like right in front of our face, but like the sheep, we can so miss it, is that maybe Jesus is saying, you know, on the cross, I was taken and I was broken. And I was lifted up to God. Right? But, many more people than could have ever been imagined at that time by the followers of God. All of us today in this room have been reached out to by that bread broken and given. Jesus is our fifth loaf. Let's take and eat. Let's take and eat. Because when we were hungry, he fed us. And when we were thirsty, he gave us something to drink. Let's take and let's eat. Amen? Alright, will you guys please pray with me as we head on out? Lord God, thank you so much for loving us. Enough that you can love us and you can love others through us, God. That there is, that there is enough to go around. There's more than enough to go around, God. That you are determined to continually call us back to eat of your love and to receive it and to give it to others, God. We love you so much. We, thanks for, we thank you for being here. And uh, I thank you for this time to just, to just share with these people. We love you, God, and it's your name we pray. Amen.